Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Uh, Today's episode is on the new Netflix movie Hold the Dark by director Jeremy Saunier and uh, written by Macon Blair. Uh, I'm happy to be joined by my friend Elijah Howard to talk about this one. Elijah, thank you for helping me get through like probably the last week before we can say Oscar season like really gets started. Uh, thank you for having me. It's it's been a it's been a bear of a late season. I'll tell you what. I mean, I'm happy to be here with you, but wow, it's been dry. <laughs> yeah, I know. And like, I'm about to be uh at it, after next week, and I'm like out of town for four straight weekends. So it's like I've just been complaining like all the time to all these people about how like there's some decent movies that have been out the last month, but nothing that's like really meaty and excited, to, ex- really exciting to talk about. And uh, and not that I don't think Hold the Dark isn't, but I mean, as far as things that I'm expecting to be good, uh, I think we're about to get to get to a more exciting part of the year. And now it's going to like, now I'm going to be like out of town, like all the time. And just going to be like scraping by to see stuff, but whatever, this one was on Netflix. So easier access for everyone. So I'm hoping people at least checked it out and gave it a shot and we'll, uh, listen to hear what we have to say. But, uh, first I want to just, uh, give a quick summation of this one. Cause I realized on some of these podcasts, I've just been like jumping into it and not giving the plot at all in case like someone actually like hasn't seen the movie and is coming to me and whoever is, uh, my guest for a recommendation. But, uh, as I said, hold the dark is directed by Jeremy Saunier, whose last two movies, uh, Blue Ruin and Green Room uh, were very critically acclaimed. Green Room had more well-known actors in it, so it made a little bit more of a dent in the uh, just at the box office and with the general public. But uh, Hold the Dark uh, is a collaboration he did with Macon Blair, who starred in Blue Ruin and had a part in Green Room, and he has a part in this too, but also wrote it. And it is about the uh, it's about a guy who's a is it, what 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 is Jeffrey Wright play Elijah? Is he a naturalist? Is he a writer? Is he some combination of that? A hunter? I don't know. Um, yeah, he's um, <laughs> he's a he's a he's a man. You he's, know? A man he's a man. Of the, he's a man. He's a man of the of the wilderness of sorts. Um, yeah, <laughs> he's a man or a guy. Yes, I like that. And, he, uh, <laughs> and, and another character uh, later in the movie uses the word guy a lot in another term in another way, which is kind of interesting. But uh, but uh, yeah, he's a guy that gets called in by uh. A woman who lives in a small Alaskan town, played by Riley Keough, to uh, track down and kill the wolves who killed her baby son. And her husband is played by Alexander Skarsgård. He is a military veteran who, as we will come to see throughout the movie, might be dealing with some issues. But around the time that Jeffrey Wright's character, whose name is... Uh, is it Russell Core? Russell, Russell Core. <laughs> That's a name. <laughs> um, uh, Russell Core. Yeah, he gets he gets called in to track this wolf, but Alexander Skarsgård comes back around the same time, and uh, shit gets dark, shit gets weird, and it basically goes from there as he investigates this area of the Alaskan wilderness. Uh, uh, Elijah, uh, just before we, do, I, I, as I was talking to you before we started recording, I know you enjoyed uh, Jeremy Sonia's first two movies too. What is it that he does like really well that you appreciated in Green Room and Blue Ruin, and uh, ha- why didn't that happen here? Is what I'll say, uh, and, I, and, right. I, and, I'll pre- and I'll preface that by saying I think both of you and I may, might have liked parts of these movies, but I think it's safe to say we don't think it quite lived up to those first two, and maybe part of the blame of that should fall on. Uh, Macon Blair, because I think I'd much rather him be a actor full time. But I, I want to get your thoughts. I, yeah, I agree, and I think I think we'll get to that. But I mean, I know when I, I think I, I first came to uh, Jeremy Saunier's films through one of my friends, uh, Gage, who uh, had recommended I think 
uh, Green Room to me originally, and and I watched that, and then I went back and watched Blue Ruin, and um, the discussion that we had that led to me kind of, uh, you know, really wanting and needing to dive into these films was um, a comparison of Jeremy Saulnier to uh, to John Carpenter, huh. um, and uh, just in this the kind of the the pacing um, and the tension in his films and the the focus on um, you know like these these kind of character driven um, almost I think I think a word that I've started to use is diorama esque um, thrillers where it's you know you can you can really just imagine the director playing with these characters in this little toy set um, and you can see you know, the interactions and you can see how everything is connected and there's a, there's a visual, uh, you know, texture and a, a striking quality to it. And, um, and those are things that I, I'd come to ex- expect after watching, uh, Green Room and Blue Ruin and, you know, getting that in, in spades from both of those films. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, another thing I thought about, obviously not, doesn't have the filmography of a John Carpenter, but I, I thought of, um, I thought of Blue Ruin as almost a cousin to shotgun stories, uh, and that they're like these local stories and small, I don't, I think Blue Ruin might be take place in the South. Like all, obviously all of Jeff Nichols movies do. And just like these local stories, like revenge thriller with features like but also like scrappy indie movies with like not as well-known actors even if people people knew michael shannon at the time shotgun stories came out he's a bigger character now and i i I think i just appreciate those kind of stories like you said where it's like you building towards something that's like pretty crazy though i'd say like blue ruins uh is even more tense throughout than shotgun stories which kind of explodes in the second half and i and in green room i think is also similarly like more intense throughout but obviously like builds and builds and builds too and i i don't know uh i'd I'd say with uh hold the dark i in in part of also is i think you're you still get to know those characters in those first two movies like it's green room is very economical and like letting you know who all the people in this band are like and all these people you're about to be stuck with in an impossible situation and i hear i think like things just like get really crazy and hold the dark before i have a chance to fully care about all who all the people are and i think macon blair also and i mean yeah there's a little bit of a body count in um the, the what the movie he had at sundance last year i don't feel at home with the world in, in this world anymore the one with the weird title yeah um <laughs> it, it was fun but like here i think he he has the mistake of like thinking body count equals like profundity and it just became laughable for me at a point and i don't really think it really built it it gave itself a, itself a chance to say anything before it just started like letting letting the death count rack up, and that was kind of yeah. like the biggest issue. Yeah, I mean, I would I would agree. I think um, you know something that I noticed because actually I um, I watched it and then I rewatched it a little bit when you asked um, asked for me to be on on the podcast. So yeah. I said, you know, let me go back and just try and retrace some of my thoughts. And I found while I was watching it that I was I was almost reminded of like 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 classic Hollywood in no, but not in a good way. I was reminded of classic Hollywood in the way the characters were written into the script where they just sort of appeared. Right. Um, there, there was no, there was no setup or introduction for any character in this movie. It was somebody appears on screen um, and any, you know, exposition that's needed to introduce them happens right then and there. There's no, there's, there's nothing 
foreboding or, I mean, like maybe the introduction of Alexander Skarsgård's character, but, you know, beyond the, like Vernon, but beyond that, I mean, like James Badge Dale as the cop, he just like appears and then he's in the movie. Yeah, I actually like that performance, but it's kind of like he's, he's just all of a sudden there and he's just like, it feels like you're supposed to know who he is without... And, and, like, I don't need a ton of exposition or a whole thing where someone reads off someone's resume like we're in an Aaron Sorkin movie. I don't need that, but I want something a little more to give me a sense of, like, who people are. And I thought maybe, like, it was just my fault for watching on Netflix and maybe getting distracted by a second screen or something. And I was like, man, like, why is Russell doing this exactly? And I was and the, but then I read I read, I read a couple other reviews they're like no, it's rather inexplicable that he's still doing it once the um once uh Riley Keough gets in his bed naked wearing a wolf's mask and he doesn't just get the hell out of dodge. And I feel yeah. like you probably should yeah. have well, like I said, you don't need like a whole entire monologue where he explains his life story and you get his his background and bits and pieces throughout like you need some context for why people are doing the things they're doing especially when it's as crazy as like going into the alaskan wilderness looking for a wolf (laughs) right right and i think and and i you know in in kind of in conjunction with that i felt that when explanations were provided within the film they were so trite and you know um i think my one, I mean, I don't want to jump the gun here in talking about this, but I think obviously the, you know, the centerpiece of the film was is the 15 minute Waco esque standoff. Ugh, yeah. Um, and uh, but but leading up to it, the interaction that occurs be- between uh, uh, the, the Native American and the cop, and um, and just the oh, like the dialogue in that scene was oh so yeah brutally. I- like like unbelievably bad we're, we're in a we're in a group chat on facebook with some friends and i think i had seen you make a comment before i watched it about because you watched it before i did about just how how making blair should stay away from the typewriter or something like that and i was, I was wondering man am i gonna like be able to know what he's even talking about like am i gonna like is that just gonna go over my head like the bad parts of the script and then all of a sudden i get to that scene and i'm just like this feels like it's like someone decided to like purposely make it a point of like recreating like the worst parts of true detective or something like that you know what i mean we're like yeah. someone was just like going super super macho and uh over the top with the with their uh trying to sound dark and deep and with with without really any justification behind it and like yeah. we, we had seen that character for maybe five minutes at that point in the film and i it just it, it was it just felt very out of nowhere and i was like man it just god i, I don't know what they're going for here really you know yeah. and maybe, I mean, maybe it, they're trying to set up this that scene and like I set up the big set piece. I don't know, but it didn't really do that either. Yeah, but I mean, again, so there's that idea that the the context is introduced when the scene happens. There's nothing to give us. And I mean, I guess we, you know, earlier in the film for people for people who are you know trying to follow along at home. Earlier in the film, this Native American character, who's a friend of Alexander Skarsgård, the uh, husband of the the female lead. Yes. Um, he. They they arrive um, at the hospital to identify the body of of this child that's found, and uh, later, for whatever reason, Alexander Skarsgård kills two police officers, kills the coroner, and then steals his uh, son's body. And the, this Native American uh, war, you know, Chion combat buddy or Chion, I know the character's name, but I don't, they never really explain his relationship to Alexander Skarsgård. They're, but they're he just friends, sort of, I guess, from the area. 
growing up. Or... Yeah, he he just sort of stands by and watches and you know helps out and it, and then later goes to extreme horrible lengths to I to accomplish I'm not sure what to to you know stick it to the police force. I, I guess I mean I is this, maybe because I mean it's established that, like his daughter or, or child. I don't. I think it was a daughter got taken by wolves also, and maybe he was just upset at them for not doing a better job. Or I think part, I, I read another review that was just like he was mad at the white man for uh, for coming in on his territory and just right. taking over his town. But I, I don't really think they talked all that much about it. Maybe maybe aside from anything he mentions in that conversation with James Badgedale. And... Yeah, no, I mean, he, he doesn't, and that was another problem that I had with that scene is that, I, frankly, I found the portrayal to be a little bit offensive, and I know that I can't, you know, that I'm, I'm not necessarily the one to speak for, um, you know, this group of people, but I found the line specifically where James Badgedale says that one of the police officers that uh, Chion killed uh, was about to retire to San Francisco, and Chion says, San Francisco, never heard of it. And I was like, that that just seems like such a like an uh, like a like a like a really cynical, vitriolic portrayal right. of, of like, right. And of, no, and I'm glad you made that point. And I, I mean, there's more I want to go back to about both um, that 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 set piece and Alexander Skarsgård. But that, it's funny that you mentioned that because one movie that inevitably is draw, this has drawn some comparisons with is Wind River, which right. came, came out around uh, this time last year. And I, I think one of the criticisms of that which is i mean i guess it's totally fair is that it was like a white savior type of thing going on because i mean you you hot cast two white actors to go investigate the death of the native american person and i and i thought yeah that's fair but at the same time like i don't think i, I the one thing i gave it i i kind of said to defend it at that time was i don't think taylor sheridan gets like 12 million dollars to go make that movie without two avengers in the lead like it might just not happen um without them i mean whatever studios that were behind hey that was a weinstein company thing actually but um, like they the last one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, Netflix obviously has plenty of money. It's they had that opening Alexander Skarsgård scene just to show they could film somewhere wherever they filmed that because it was clearly different from where they filmed the rest of the movie. Right, exactly. <laughs> but but I mean, like I thought in Wind River, I thought like its depiction of the Native American characters was actually like really interesting and like less stereotypical than like most things I've seen in popular culture. And I mean, while a lot of those characters weren't in great places in life, they felt very human. And here, I mean, the one Native American character that gets a lot of screen time is just kind of a crazy person, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's, it, you know, draws into a larger question of, um, you know, of, of readings of films um, and, you know, looking at a film from a reconstructionist perspective or from, uh, you know, when we, when we talk in film criticism, we say an anti-colonialist reading of a film. Um, which is about the context of the, you know, the Native American portrayal within, uh, you know, the film narrative at large. And so that's where you get the duality of, you know, opinions on films like Wind River or or uh, Dances with Wolves, I think most famously, where you have a large number of people look at Dances with Wolves and say, hey, this movie is terrible because it's portrayal of its portrayal of a white savior narrative. And then you have people who look at it and looking are looking purely at the portrayal of Native Americans um, and say, well, no, this is a positive reconstructionist identity compared to something like, you know, searchers or whatever, you know, early, uh, you know, what portrayals of, you know, Native Americans in film, right. which were overwhelmingly negative, showing them to be, you know, savages yep. or whatever. Um, and so, 
this movie, I think, I think Hold the Dark kind of failed in both capacities, <laughs> which is sort of astonishing in this day and age that you have a film that uh, both portrays Native American culture in this weird, mishmashed, disassociated kind of frenetic and and kind of bad light um you know very reminiscent of that early you know early american sap you know quote-unquote savage uh you know image of native americans um and that also in the context of the film places native americans in a position that's sort of bizarre and it doesn't really doesn't really help you know in in the identity of the film yeah no i completely agree and uh i actually want to work backwards for a second and we can talk about the that set piece and some of this other some of the other things with what that'll be a little more spoilery and uh, but before we get to that i do want to ask you about some of the the technical aspects of this film um because i think one of the things i think i saw you write about as in regards to it hey maybe like we don't like the script but hey jeremy saunier still kind of does this thing and what what do you and when, when you when you think about that and if you want to parse out who did good and who didn't do so good I, if make and blair didn't do well what, what were some of the things that still impressed you from a directorial standpoint with it yeah i mean obviously i'm not i'm at this point i'm still not going to you know slag jeremy saunier's direction i mean his ability to um you know frame things and to uh, to keep, uh, to have the courage to keep the camera um, in a single position, or or to to look at a scene maybe for longer than what we feel is normally comfortable. Um, I just think that's a you know it's a talent that not a lot of directors have, um, and I think that's something that's on display in a lot of times in this film, even in scenes that are stupid. You know, we may <laughs> say in a in a vacuum, we're still good scenes. I think the you know early in the film when Riley Keough uh, or when, rather, uh, when Jeffrey Wright wakes up in the middle of the night and Riley Keough is naked, walking around with the wolf mask on, and she gets into bed with him. I mean, in in the context of the film, that scene is bad and doesn't make any sense. Hmm. But the film, the scene itself, I thought was very well done. I mean, it's tense, it's strange, it's um, it's unsettling, and I think that has a lot to do with the way that Jeremy Saulnier, uh, you know, kind of has that patience, and I think. Uh, you know that that's on display in a lot of the film, and I think it's bolstered by the cinematography, which I also thought was very good. Yeah, um, that's one other thing I was going to say was just that, like, I thought that uh, I felt pretty cold watching it, which is, I guess, pretty good. I mean, you could probably speak better than I can as to like how how, how much credit goes to the cinematographer and director for that, but like, it certainly felt convincing for. And I guess they did film in it looks like Canada, and like, I mean, I, I I can always appreciate when they can like take me to a place like that and like really feel immersed in it in the same way that like I really was appreciative of Wind River it um I I thought it I thought it 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 conveyed that kind of desolate feeling really well and just all of every every time we visit someone it was like man like I actually do feel like I'm in a remote cabin somewhere and I give it credit for that if 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 nothing else because this movie probably would have been unbearable if I at least didn't feel like I was like transported to a different place yeah, um, no, I agree, and I think I, I would also say that an additional part of that um, is the the production design, mm-hmm. um, and that I think a lot of times, uh, maybe it's becoming more common now, but in in the past, um, I think films that were set in places like Alaska and you know in Canada in the far north or whatever um, are, are 
what I would refer to as igloo core. <laughs> you know, like we there's there's a very specific kind of production design for them to make them look wintry or whatever. Um, and it just feels it feels unrealistic. Um, uh, but but this film and and other films recently, Wind River included, I think. Um, do a good job with production design and making the locations and the sets within the film look uh, look real. They look like they're normal locations that have been affected by the weather. Um, I think Kilut was well, was a well designed town, um, and you can really get a sense of the. It's kind of just desolate and dusty and and cold and falling apart. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, the last thing, I'll, the last nice thing I'll probably say about it is, is that I don't really blame any of these actors for the problems I had with the movie. I, uh, like I, I like James Badgill's obviously a guy. This like pops up in random spots a lot. And as clunky as that character's introduction might have been, it was a cool presence to have. Just like a a guy that seemed like totally normal, just like amongst all these other like people that had stuff wrong with them and that was interesting enough and i i i kind of say the same thing about riley keogh and that i like her all the time and she was fine as as weird as that character was and like i don't know it's a lot of people i really like and a director who i really liked and you could tell that they're actors that are doing their best and i don't blame them for the faults of the thing and if you like if if you like seeing these people act it might be worth the trip to – or it's not even a trip to the movies. It's a Netflix movie. It might be worth you just watching it anyway if you just want to see them do something. Just like I, I – like as far as if you're listening to this for a recommendation before we spoil things for you, I'd say you're, you might not get the best story. But if you just want to like go feel cold and watch some actors do things you like seeing them do, then hey, maybe it's worth it for you. Yeah, I agree. I mean I think um... – you know, in a way, I almost felt morose because I was like, "Wow, look at all these, look at all these good performances that are being right, exactly <laughs> kind of thrown away by a bad, yeah. um, by a bad screenplay." But yeah, no, I, I would totally agree. I think Jeffrey Wright, even, um, you know, he's a very uh, a word I've I've learned recently um, is elastic when referring to you know expressiveness in actors, and I think Jeffrey Wright has that, and I don't think he gets a lot of credit for it for his ability to. Um, you know, to kind of wear his emotions on his face, and he does it really well in this movie too. Yeah, so. I, yeah, it, it, like Russ. <laughs> I, I hadn't really said the name out loud before we started recording, but I, now now I'm not going to be able to say it without laughing. But I mean, I, I as again as ridiculous as he is amongst all the others for just being this wolf hunter dude i mean i still felt like i got a pretty in as ridiculous as the screenplay is like i still feel like i got a i i felt like i got a fairly good sense of who that dude was and i give that i give more credit to him for that than i do to make him blur um for sure yeah i agree uh okay and uh, now 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 we'll get into some more spoilery stuff we alluded to a body count before but um and i think one of the problems in this big scene that we were alluding to is that yeah there's a big body count in it and um and it and it also it is led into by like one of these actors that is just kind of or, or by a big conversation between two actors who we say just kind of walk into the movie and we don't know much about them. I the aside from the uh, Chio guy himself, uh, no one actually really dies in that shootout that we know anything about, and I think that robs it of like a lot of a lot of drama. Right, I agree. I mean, I think um, you know it's a set piece because it's the only thing that happens. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of other murdering being done by Alexander Skarsgård in the movie, but like, this is the most, uh, uh, notable action scene, I would say. Right. Right. And, and I think, you know, you compare it to a film, uh, like green, uh, green room, you know, that Sonia did. And 
you know, that movie is action throughout. And yes, there are scenes where, um, you know, there's high body counts, there's, you know, random goons being killed off or whatever, but in the context, it makes sense. Well, or, and, or Wind River, which uh, has that, has actually a, a I don't want to say a similar shootout because it's, uh, it's quicker and, but probably, probably more efficient and well done, I would say, where, we don't know a ton about a lot of the guys involved in that shootout in there. Um, Elizabeth Olsen and Jeremy Renner are on the scene in that shootout. I, I, if I remember correctly at that point, but you, you end up like, you kind of know who those guys are and what role they play because they are related to that John Bernthal character and that they worked with him. And you know, they're somehow involved in the disappearance of that girl. And whereas, so it's like, you, you, you at least like get like, wow, that's pretty significant that like they just started the shootout where it's this year, it's a bunch of nameless, faceless cops getting shot at that. They're not going to serve any other purpose. And whereas the movie, you know, gets back around to servicing them in wind river. Right, right, exactly. And I, I mean, I would say that the film or the scene, the scene, um, you know, the big shootout, it takes its context within the film from that single conversation right before it happens. Right. And I think the only reason that the standoff or that, the, you know, this big shootout happens is because of Macon Blair is because of Macon Blair <laughs> is because of Macon Blair's uh, desire to illustrate his point about, uh, you know, Native American uh, relationship with you know the relationship with white people in a kind of visceral manner. But the problem is, it's just it, it's it's way too drawn out, and, while, and there's so much death, and right. it doesn't really it doesn't really amount to anything, right? Like, and even if we don't get to know Chion better than we do, and and like we both agreed earlier, like we've got a pretty good sense for like how Kilut felt from a climate standpoint, but we don't have a sense of the personality of that town really at all. And right. even if we just had a few more scenes of like people going around and doing stuff in town, when Jeffrey Wright gets into town, if he has to interact with some town people or something like that, and maybe this, we, in the periphery, we get some sense of what this town's history is. Like maybe it, he just makes a lot more sense when he's give, delivering all that ridiculous dialogue, but we don't have any kind of context for, what that town has been through. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it felt the whole film felt sparse, but not in the good way. You know, I, I a lot of the times I use sparse as a, as a good term. I say, you know, oh, this, you know, this, this sci-fi movie was very sparse and it didn't, you know, focus too much on X on exposition or, you know, developing a lot of special effects or whatever. It was a sparse movie. It was good. This movie was sparse in that it didn't. It didn't really do anything. It didn't. It didn't. It didn't attempt to do anything besides. Uh, I don't know. Besides, maybe trying to make a point. But I, I mean, I. That's something I guess we can get to. But I don't really know what the point of the yeah. movie was. Yeah. So you talk about the movie not really having a point, and I want to talk more about the Alexander Skarsgård character later because. He is the one character I think there's a lot to unpack with, even if I don't totally know what the movie was doing with him. But one of the things that I think it could have addressed with him was – and it might have been trying to address with him. I don't know how good of a job it ultimately did was uh, making some kind of point about PTSD or mental illness or something like that. And it could have done a little bit more work with that. But as far as uh, one of the reference points I also had for this movie, like the one other thing I wanted to go back and mention a little bit because it's another movie that takes place in Alaska is Insomnia. And Insomnia, 
I, I wouldn't I don't I don't want to go so far as to say it deals with mental illness, even though the um Robin Williams character in it, it's obviously pretty crazy, but it gets into like the effect that town has on people. And that that in and of itself is pretty interesting to see how well man Al Pacino's going through some shit because he's in this place where it's always light. And they do reference Alaskan light in this movie and how it can be it, it can really fuck with someone. And it, but it, it doesn't really pick that up. It, it doesn't get it how just having to live such a an existence in solitude can really just affect anyone's day-to-day disposition or worldview. It doesn't address any of that stuff. And that's like the most interesting thing about Alaska to me at all. And so if it wanted to just try, try and say something about it, because they get it how Alexander Skarsgård had been living there since he was little. And they could have gotten it how just living in that kind of existence and not even Anchorage, like you're in like the middle of nowhere, Alaska can really shape someone and kind of mess them up or mess with them or mess with their head or affect just how they how they function it, it it doesn't even get at that and i think that's one thread the, the movie was right there to be pulled and it just doesn't do it and i don't know if it was if that's anything you thought about or if you agree with that or what but that was just kind of like one other point i thought the movie could have touched on that it just didn't seem to have a lot of interest in yeah i mean you mentioned insomnia and both the the uh christopher nolan you know remake and the original eric skilberg version both deal with the idea of the, you know, the, the land of always light. And, but I think they both relate it to this idea of, um, you know, uh, light versus dark, good versus evil. And, you know, how can you know when somebody is evil, uh, or, you know, how can you identify evil when, when everything is bathed in light all the time? Right. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, that they kind of played that element in an insomnia, and I don't feel like – I feel like in Hold the Dark, I mean obviously given the title, there is <laughs> there is definitely some uh, you know, notion of that. True, true. Of you know, the, the duality of good and evil, of, you know, of the fight between light and dark that, that's kind of present in every uh, far north thriller. But I just feel like the movie <laughs> – I think the the problem with that I had with it is that it tiptoed the line between, um, between between making a point and trying to be grounded. Because um, I when they first introduced the idea of Riley Keough's character being possessed by a wolf demon, you know that that the, the villagers talk about the Tanakh. Yeah, you can um, you can only be so grounded once you do that, I guess. Right. And well, and I feel like in addition to, you know, reality, linking it to reality, but the idea of there being an explanation for what's happening versus what I think they were doing with Alexander Skarsgård's character, which was establishing parable, which was showing, um, you know, a connection between his, you know, kind of innate predatorial or uh, not not predator, uh, rather hunter instincts and how that plays into the environment and the wolves and, you know, uh, his, his wolf spirit and things like that, you know, it was making all these abstract connections, but then it's also, the movie is literally speaking to the idea of being possessed by a wolf demon. And I feel like when you do that, when, when you say those things openly in a screenplay, it makes it hard for the audience to take it seriously and and i wonder if it's almost because it sort of plays down to the audience if it says like okay the audience is too stupid to understand the central metaphor here so let's just say it openly i also well yeah but i i also just don't think the metaphor is all that interesting or compelling 
personally. I mean, I maybe it might be there. I, no, I agree. I mean, because I don't know. I, I and if I and just talking about it in the context of the Skarsgård character Vernon, when he first shows up, I've had. I mean, I've had my fill of movies using. Um, attacks on women or deaths of women or rapes of women as like a starting point or some kind of catalyst for something. But if nothing else, the scene where he kills the guy that's raping a woman, it makes me think, well, this guy, maybe he does have some kind of just a messed up moral compass. I mean, in theory, he saw a guy doing a bad thing and he protected someone else, if nothing else. And then, and then and you made the point about seeing if that if if the light can kind of hide the darkness of someone like him and i don't think anyone at the town really has that good of a concept of how messed up he actually is when he first shows up and then he start and then he just randomly kills a police officer and who's just there to help and i and i'm just caught off guard and if you say wolf wolf demon that doesn't really there's, a, there's still a disconnect there for me i guess that i'm just not totally grasping it's not that compelling it's like i i get it if he's trying to kill I get it if it's just a revenge story, but I'm just, I'm sorry. Like I, I don't know. It, it, it just doesn't do it for me. I, I, I wish I had, I could elaborate more, but it just, it, it feels like a bit of a, I don't want to say a non sequitur, but it just doesn't feel like there. He, he's really done enough to like really have me be along for the ride once he starts killing innocent cops and coroners. Yeah, and, and I mean, it, you don't. There's no real, uh, you know, motivation for what he's doing. I don't, you know. Is he gonna? Because they spend the little bit of exposition that they develop early on, um, explaining how powerful and how potent of a relationship um, Riley Keough and Alexander Skarsgård have. Um, you know how how they spend the little amount of time in the screenplay talking about exposition. That's what they choose to develop, um, and so when he returns and he's. Uh, you know, hellbound for vengeance or whatever, it just seems out of place because it's like, what is he, you know, can the audience really be expected to believe that he's going to like kill Riley Keough? Like this woman that they've, that they've established he is like soul bound to, that he is, you know, like connected to in, from in some otherworldly form. Like, Well, you do get to see him kill a lot of other people though. And uh, I mean, I mentioned the the cops, which was probably the most off putting part of it to me. I mean, at a certain point, it's like once he kills the cops, it's like he knows he's a marked man. It almost makes sense he wants to cover his tracks at every other stop he goes to. But I mean, at the same time, a lot of those are just he just like shows up randomly at a hotel that he just happens to know that she might have been at. I don't know if they explain how they know that he knows that he might she might have gone there. Uh, he stops by, and then I guess next to the hotel, there's some other old man that likes to give travelers supplies. Uh, just shows up there and starts talking to him. Uh, did any of those scenes where you're just following him around to different places? He and then to making Blair's place after the woman shoots him. Uh, did any of those scenes do much for you at all? Where he just talks to someone and kills him and he's on his way. Uh, no, <laughs> no, I don't. I, I really don't think so. And I mean, and if we're talking about you know comparisons between Jeremy Saulnier's other films and this film. I think Blue Ruin did a much better job examining, you know, a quest for uh, revenge um, and the complexities behind it. Um, you know, in, in Blue Ruin, we really get a sense of the different aspects of revenge. And we see that reflected in Macon Blair's character when, it, you know, as, as in Blue Ruin, 
um, you know, as the main character there. And, and it is, you know, kind of just how revenge takes a toll on the person who is seeking it and how, um, you know, revenge is not always, uh, you know, so black and white. And in this film, I, I honestly can't tell you what it was saying about revenge because I don't, I don't frankly think it says anything about revenge, yeah, but, but, I think. Yeah, no, no, I was just going to say Blue Ruin. I mean, it's pretty efficient in just getting at early on how it's just about, I mean, this guy wants revenge on the guy he killed his parents, but also, like, their family, and there's a lot of history there, but it unpacks it fairly efficiently, if I remember correctly. It's been a couple years since I since I watched it, but, I mean, it's contained enough that you get, a, early on, a fairly good sense of all of his aims, and here... I don't. I mean, like, like you said, he, he's going from place to place, hacking people up, and then you think it's because he's on this revenge to find uh, Riley Keough, but it ends up not really being it either. Right. I mean, and I don't. You know, if we if we want to take it to the to the end here, we're, we're already spoiling. You can, the, you can feel free to say whatever. Narrative. You want. Yeah. I mean, he. What what is he really? I mean, they they outright say it. I mean, he says like, or somebody says it. I don't remember if it's Alexander. I don't. Alexander Skarsgård doesn't say a whole lot in the film in general. But no. you know, somebody says like the springs um, that are that's the setting for the final you know scene of the film. Like that's a good place to go to get clean. And I just, I mean, I was again. It was another moment in the screenplay where I was just like flabbergasted listening to it. I was like, did they really just say that? Like. <laughs> That's such a, like, yes, you go to water to get clean. Like, that, and any film that has a scene where somebody takes a bath, like, that's always the, like, <laughs> it's rebirth. It's, you know, it's renewal, rejuvenation. It's, it's turning a new page. That's always the metaphor. And it, it was just a, a moment where I was like, you know, okay, he's going to the Springs and that the, even though there's 20 minutes left in the movie, you know exactly what the point of him going is. And when that happened, when that line was said, I started thinking in my head. I was like, okay, so what's going to – is Russell going to kill him? Like are we going to – is he going to be robbed of that renewal? Is that what we're going to see? You know, what's, what's the twist going to be? How are we going to, you know, invert this idea of him seeking renewal and then he gets there? And were you pretty Were you pretty uh, ready for James Badgedale to get killed after you saw he had a wife that was six months pregnant and he wanted to take her on a trip to the Caribbean? Right, yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I, I mean, I was just, I was, I was hoping for some, at the, <laughs> you know, when you're an hour and 40 minutes into a film you, and it, there's been no subversion whatsoever for the entire runtime of the film up until that point. You can't be too hopeful, but I really was holding out that there was going to be some twist. Um, and there just wasn't, they get to the spring and Russell goes on his merry way and you know, they, they go there. Well, I mean, he gets stabbed, but he lives, uh, and he returns to his life and Alexander Skarsgård and Riley Keough take their son's corpse, and I don't, I don't really know what yeah. go live in the woods. Like, there's no. If I remember correctly, Russell was also kind of saved by a benevolent, uh, out of nowhere, mythical Indian figure, kind of too. Who, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah so I, I forgot. The so hospital, the, yeah. there's another. So yeah, Indians serve another purpose in their movie. They they come out of nowhere to, to the rescue and they go away. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. And I mean, it's another attempt, I think, at, at trying to portray, uh, you know, Native Americans positively within the light of the film. But uh, like, I think I, I compared it a little bit to uh, Revenant in that it felt like a, a misplacement of uh, Native American mysticism mm. as a sort of, you know, it, it plays into another stereotype of like the mysticism and, and the, you know, spirituality of Native Americans as being, you know, I don't know, alien or, or something otherworldly uh, that comes in at the last minute. And, and, and there is, I don't want to say there's allusions to it earlier in the film because I think that would be giving Macon Blair too much credit. <laughs> but like during during the you know the big standoff, uh, the big big shootout uh, set piece, um, you know there's the part where Jeffrey Wright runs out and grabs the um, the one cop who got shot and is dragging him away, and he shouts "Stop!" you know at Gion, and there's this very you know, dramatic moment where everything sort of freezes for a second and he has this, you know, Jeremiah Johnson connection with the, with the native American. And it's Mm. just sort of, it's sort of, it was just weird to me. And again, they, they hammered that at the ending and it just felt, it felt manipulative. I guess it's nice. He saved that cop. I mean, the younger guy in the shootout, but it was also like really telegraphed that that guy was going to do something stupid and it would have been, like they, there could have been. There was the potential for like something a little more surprising within the, with even within that set piece itself. When, but instead, it's just like, hey man, don't move from behind that rock. And then he really looks like he wants to move from behind the rock. He's like, don't move from behind the rock. And then he moves from behind the rock. It's like that guy looked like so young. It was like, man, like even if I don't know who that guy is, like I at least kind of care about him because he looks way too young to be in this situation and having that job. But it just like kind of made him make a really predictable decision and. That was it. And then he, I guess, I guess Jeffrey Wright saved him, so he didn't die. But it was just like, I don't know. It was, just, I guess, it was loud, and that was about it. It didn't really do much else for me. That whole shootout, because we we talked about it a little bit, and how the characters didn't mean a whole lot. But I mean, I I don't know. For as much money as they probably spent to pull that, and as much time as they probably put into it, I feel like it could have just felt a little more unique. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think that you know when I said, you know, at the beginning of this, that, you know, one element of Saulnier's films uh, that I liked was this kind of diorama aspect. I do think that can work negatively against a film. Um, You know, when, when it's too apparent that a director is just like playing with these little toy people. Hmm. um, And I do think that that, that sort of came through in a few parts in, in this movie. And, uh, you know, I, 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 again, I don't want to put all of the blame on Megan Blair cause maybe that's unfair. Um, but I do think largely that, I mean, if, if Jeremy Sonia can, you know, succeed astonishingly for two films and then suddenly have such a middling, uh, you know, un, unenthusiastic film like this one i don't think it's really you know him you know him meddling with characters that's the problem i think it's more just that there wasn't characters to begin with you know for him to really play with yeah i agree um i don't know 
I guess my last question is, unless you have any other final points you want to make on the film, um, my last question was going to be, I guess the next time we're going to see anything from Saunier is that he directed a few episodes of the new season of True Detective. Is there anything you want to see from him next or Macon Blair next to kind of rebound from this? Uh, I mean, I think you said this. I think Macon Blair is uh, foremost an actor. Um, and I, I'm not going to lie, I like him as an actor. I mean, I, I think he was really good in Blue Ridge. I think... Uh, you know the parts that he's had in. He was like a sleazy uh, dude. He's a sleazy. He was the sleazy band promoter in Green Room, and then he right, even yeah. he even had a, a like a small part at the beginning of I don't I don't feel at home in this world anymore, where he's just like a bar guy, a guy at the bar that spoils a book for Melanie Linsky. But it's like a totally you can already tell in like the the forty five seconds of screen time he gives himself that like he it's like a really different character from anything else he's done, and. I don't know, and I, I guess he had a, I, I forgot he was in Logan Lucky. I'm just looking at his IMDb now. But like, I yeah, he was a small part as like a yeah. As, he FBI came in, came in with Hillary, yeah. yeah, came in with Hillary Swank. But I mean, I don't know. Like, I I just it'd be cool to see him acting some other people's stuff, like someone like like a caliber of a Soderbergh, and I'd be cool to see. I don't know. And Sonia is a filmmaker though, and but like he wrote the two things that we really liked. So I mean, if he wants to go make his own thing again, hopefully someone gives him the money to do it. I guess. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I think if there's there's one thing, and you know, related to that, that I, I picked up on, it was, uh, and I had been kind of reticent to say this because I know it was sort of controversial, but the idea that it's like this, this is what Ted Sarandos was complaining about that like wasn't allowed to be, uh, you know, considered in competition at Cannes, you know. Like, <laughs> Like, this was what they were holding out on. And I know Roma comes out later, and that film will probably be astonishing, and I'm looking forward to it. But I just felt like there was a lot of sound and fury given to the idea that, like, oh, this was, you know, this was such a scrappy little film that, you know, that it deserved, uh, you know, it deserved recognition, and Netflix should be propped up for, for um, you know, should be recognized for, for its, uh, you know, devotion to artistry and things like that. And just watching this, I, I was so underwhelmed, and I <laughs> really just it brought all that back up for me, and I was so disappointed again. Where I was like, you know, dang, like really, like this was this is what you guys could muster. Um, like you said, so I, the, the, I they, that, they got Roma though, so maybe that'll be worth more if um, any of their complaining, because like you said, it looks pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I am looking forward to that. I just, I hope that, I hope that everybody involved, um, you know, takes away good lessons from, uh, you know, from the response to this and from, you know, from just what the final product was. I think. Uh, Who knows? Maybe you know, a ton. Was... Maybe a ton of people watched it. We'll never know because it's on Netflix. Maybe they're just super happy and a ton of people watched it though. <laughs> right. I, I mean, yeah. I don't want to. You know, I don't want to sound negative, but yeah, I would, I would agree. I mean, I would say that it's, you know, it will be hard, maybe, to correct some of the issues from this in a vacuum because there is this just a positive feedback loop. If the film makes money on Netflix, then it is a success, and there doesn't need to be any introspection about why it has a seventy percent on Rotten Tomatoes right now. Like, yeah, no, it, it makes a lot of sense. And I appreciate you taking the, your time to talk to me about it because, like I said, I, I was pretty underwhelmed too. But I I enjoyed hearing you talk about just uh, the stuff it did well because I mean you know more about some of the technical aspects of film than I do, and 
you you see a lot of the pieces there. And I mean, when you have someone that behind the camera that can uh, do the things Jeremy Sonier does, you just wish that like he had had a little bit of better story to work with and he had all these talented actors and yes, and you can't, they can't, they can't all be winners, but you know, like, I think we're about to get to get to watch a bunch of those in the next couple months. So, I I don't know. At least we're, we're we made it to October, man. <laughs> we made it. We made it. Um, made the finish line. <laughs> um, and I mean, or, or, or in, in a way, we made the starting line because I think we're about to get a bunch of cool movies in the right. next in the next couple months. Um, You're right. But uh, but yeah. Uh, thanks again so much, Elijah, for taking the time to join me. Is there anything you like to plug while you're here? Yeah, um, we got a lot of great stuff coming to Filmstruck in the next month. Um, yeah. Elijah works have, at Turner. Uh, He's just he, so he, I guess, Filmstruck's under the Turner umbrella, so he gets to work on that kind of stuff a lot. Just for reference. Yeah, we have um, we have a uh, what's coming up? <laughs> we have a spotlight coming up uh, in a couple of weeks about a uh, Lon Chaney. There'll be a couple of great films, um, some underseen classics from the twenties from his early career. That are going to be up there. Um, we're running a, uh, a featurette on the previous um, editions of A Star Is Born um, mm. this week to coincide with the release of the new one. So um, you know whether it's uh, musicals, dramas, uh, thrillers, whatever you're in for, uh, Filmstruck's got the best. Have the you best, watched? Have you so. watched all of the old Star Is Borns? Yeah, I did. I was uh, I was actually uh working on a on a version of the spot that we uh that we put up on it um i'm not sure if my cut actually made it but mm-hmm. but i did end up watching all three recently all three of the previous renditions okay well i, I still don't watch any i mean i might take the time in the next couple of days now that i know you'll have you have them all on there i didn't realize that that i might go back and i, I just didn't know if i needed if i should or not before i saw it or if i should just the new one or if i should just go in blank because uh our, our friend daniel uh about Eight months ago, probably uh, planted his flag to be my guest for that episode. Unsurprisingly, and I'm like, oh, he watched all of them. Like, maybe it'd be interesting for me to go in not have seen any, and him to have all of them and have that reference. Or maybe I should try and be on more equal footing with him. I didn't know, um, but I was just curious uh, if you had done it all. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, all three all three previous renditions bring something different to the table. Um, there's a different aspect in each film um, of the. The, the primary relationship between the characters and um i think they're all you know interesting films in their own right and they'll all be available on friday so great and i, I i'm glad you br- just brought up filmstruck when i let you plug stuff because it's something i recommend uh my, my listeners uh look into getting because it's uh for people like for people like me and i imagine a lot of my friends that kind of follow the podcast and shared it with their friends that maybe artists people like me that had blind spots for classic film and are trying to learn more about it and that's kind of like the thing you got to get if you want to kind of watch more old stuff and get a little more well versed in it so highly recommend people look into getting filmstruck if you don't have it um as usual though you can find my stuff on letterboxd at josh jernavoy and on twitter at josh jernavoy j-u-r-n-o-v-o-y and yeah, next week episode probably going to be on that movie that no one's seen a trailer for yet called A Star Is Born, and uh, and who knows, maybe we'll go crazy next week and do two if I find someone that subjects themselves to Venom. So we'll see about that. And uh, but thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.